Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the recent uptick in banning and removing educational subjects and books from school curricula, as well as specifically who is being harmed and who is being privileged by these decisions. Clips today are from The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, At Liberty, Black History Year, and Now and Then, with additional members-only clips from Now and Then, At Liberty, and Black History Year. We have seen over the last four years, decade, 15 years, almost pick, pick your time frame, um, much of the American right wing riddled with projection, projection where they claim the left is doing that which they are actually doing. So one example is the right loves to say we are for free speech and the left is against free speech. And in reality, it's often the truth that the right is for free speech only in their very narrow view for as long as it's convenient to them. And then they are very quickly against it. They don't care about free speech once it's no longer convenient to them. Social media regulation is a great example of this. As soon as the lion's share of covid disinformation is coming from the right, they're no longer OK letting Twitter or YouTube or Facebook decide what's OK on their platform. They want to uh, mandate that these platforms allow covid disinformation. Now, on the other side of that, they claim to be against business regulation there. That's a principle. We are against regulating businesses until Twitter is banning the people they want to ban from Twitter. And all of a sudden they say we need to regulate Twitter to force them to allow certain speech. You guys understand this concept. The principle is abandoned as soon as it's inconvenient. So along these lines, there's this topic of of books and banning books, and they claim the left wants to ban books that are inconvenient to them. Uh, that being said, I've heard nothing about wanting to ban Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s anti-vaccine, anti-Dr. Fauci book or whatever other book. What what we want and speaking for myself, I want to educate people so they never fall for buying these dumb books in the first place. But this is not about me because now there's a rash of right wingers wanting to ban and in some cases succeeding at banning all sorts of books from all over the place, often under the guise of protecting kids. That's the explanation that they will often give a few examples of this. A Tennessee school board has voted unanimously to ban the Pulitzer Prize winning book Mouse. This is about the Holocaust in cartoon form. Some of you emailed me about this. They want to ban it from their eighth grade curriculum. They say it has objectionable language and nudity, cartoon nudity, of course. And there's similar campaigns underway in all sorts of other uh, districts in more than 30 states at this point. State line has been investigating this, and they will often say these books are pornographic merely because they depict an LGBTQ experience, sometimes a black character with an LGBTQ experience. Uh, Huffington Post, HuffPost now it's called, reports that in Texas, the Republican governor, Greg Abbott, is uh, sort of taking advantage of this effort to pull, quote, pornographic or obscene books from school libraries after Republican Representative Matt Krause circulated a list of 800 books that he believes 
crosses the line. And the vast majority of these books were written by women or people of color or LGBTQ writers, according to the Dallas Morning News. So consider how many of their own supposed principles they are violating here. They are for free speech, but they've got a long list of books that they want to ban. They are for doing what's best for people, yet they're not letting education experts, the teachers, decide, is this book a good teaching tool for my students or not? They are deciding from above, the elected officials, that is. And the reasons that they give for banning most of these books should actually apply to the Bible. But of course, the Bible is always okay. Uh, Murder in the Bible, incest, genocide, sexual content, it's all in the Bible. But the Bible is beyond reproach. That's a sacred cow. So putting all of this aside, a great way to get kids interested in a lot of these books is to ban them. I mean, I, I, I'm against the book banning on principle, of course, but I also recognize that banning these books might get kids interested in, in, in the books as well. The urge to do something you're not supposed to do can sort of end up being like an adrenaline rush. But that being said, uh, many of these books can easily be read online. But it is, it is again an example of, it, it's really one of the major stories of conservatism, it's not even conservatism, of reactionary right thinking of the last era, of this era, which is, our princ- nothing is more important than our principles. Of course, our principles are sacred. Until the outcome of those principles is inconvenient. When it comes to speech, when it comes to censorship, when it comes to regulation, when it comes to elections at the end of the day. And this is just the latest example. The first three months of this year, there have been 330 attempts. 36 states have proposed bills. Uh, to restrict instruction on racism or sexism. 14 states have successfully enacted such laws. Who is behind these? In the media, it seems like it's an organic thing. Hey, some parents somewhere got upset and went to the school board and suddenly a whole bunch of other parents joined in. No, it's not that at all. This is being driven from the top down, just like the Tea Party protests against Obamacare back in the day, where somebody was renting buses, somebody was organizing Facebook groups, somebody, and the somebody it turned out was big money groups associated with right-wing billionaires. We learned later. The whole Tea Party thing was AstroTurf. Apparently so is this. The Guardian last week was reporting that a bunch of these so-called parental rights groups have connections to right-wing billionaires and donor networks. Moms for Liberty, this 70,000-member nonprofit with 165 chapters around the country, uh, this is from a piece over at Salon.com, is operated by by Tina Desovich and Tiffany Justice, two former school board members, but According to its Articles of Incorporation, Moms for Liberty was originally co-founded and co-directed by Bridget Ziegler, the wife of Christian Ziegler, the vice chair of the Republican Party of Florida. The group's director of development used to work for Republican State Representative Randy Fine, who himself was a central figure in the Republicans' crusade against so-called critical race theory. Another group, Parents Defending Education. A third group, No Left Turn in Education. They all operate in the same ecosystem. They're pulling down money from these right-wing billionaires. Parents Defending Education, for example, is led by Nicole Kelly, whose resume is littered with connections to the Koch brothers' uh, rightssalon.com. Uh, and, and Neil, she was the uh, president, and, well, it just goes through the whole list. You take my word for it. So you can read the whole thing. 
the article is titled, What's Behind the Right-Wing Book Ban Frenzy, Big Money and a Long-Term Plan, over at Salon.com. Um, no left turns. Funding is likewise a mystery. They've got 30 chapters in 23 states. These are not grassroots organizations. These are, these are groups that are seeking to become grassroots organizations, reaching down into them. But uh, this Maurice Cunningham, who's a polit- political science professor at UMass Boston and the author of a book called Dark Money and the Politics of School Privatization, says, and I, you know, that that uh, what the real goal here is to destroy the public schools. He said, these groups are communications operations and highly networked into the Daily Caller, Breitbart, and Fox News. Um, they have gotten educated, educators fired and attacked online. They want to create chaos to destroy trust in public education and draw away funding. This is all about privatizing our public schools. This is a major effort to destroy our public schools and... It's being connected to Republican candidates all across the United States. And, you know, in other words, this is the latest moral panic that they're using. But the benefit, the, the secondary benefit of it is they get to, to kill off public education. You know, so we go to back to all white Christian academies like, you know, we had after Brown versus Board of Education. An entire county shut down their public schools because they didn't want to integrate them. We're right back there. Meanwhile, up in Canada, you've got this massive truck convoy. And uh, this is this is nuts. I mean, it, it, this is uh, from the T T Y E E, written by uh, David Haga. He's a, an award-winning journalist, author, post-secondary teacher, and trade union communicator. And he, he writes, "Where are Alberta Premier Jason Kenney and his United Conservative Party now?" that evidence is accumulating the disruptive and threatening Freedom Convoy occupation of Ottawa is being funded and supported by far-right activists in the United States. And and this article, they go into say, basically, this is like these color revolutions. Like, you know, we we sort of helped sponsor a revolution in Ukraine years ago. Remember the Orange Revolution that threw out the Russian-aligned prime minister and replaced him with with a Western-aligned prime minister? Um, this is like the same thing. And uh, this is, uh, he writes, this is, uh, this GoFundMe, by the way, stopped the funding for this, but um, they had raised over $10 million. This is a, a campaign to dissolve parliament less than five months after a free and fair election in which a clear majority of voters supported uh, parties in favor of vaccine mandates. At least a third of the donors were not identified by GoFundMe, and the use of fake names and stolen identities was rampart. Rampant, according to this uh, this uh, observer, political parties allowing political party and this is amazing allowing political parties to use the names of real people without their consent and to have their fees paid by un- unidentified third parties is a fraudulent practice that was recently legalized in Alberta by this right wing party that has taken over that that province's government, uh, the UCP. The Washington Post notes, quote, a significant element from the United States has been involved in the participation, funding, and organization of the self-described freedom convoy that has jammed the streets of the Canada's capital for several days. Uh, Donald Trump has come out in support of these guys, Don Jr., Elon Musk. Uh, Tucker Carlson says there's no more fearful despot than Canada's prime minister. And what are these truckers waving around as their banners? The Confederate battle flag, Trump 2024 flags, and the Gadsden flag. You know, this, and and then they ask, could this be, therefore, that Canada's anti-vaccine convoys are really what Garasino calls 
a dry run for an American uprising. We brought this suit in Oklahoma along with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, the ACLU of Oklahoma, and pro bono counsel at Schulte, Roth, and Zabel. And so we decided that we wanted to file suit in Oklahoma first, in part because the Oklahoma law covers higher education as well as K-12 education, and courts have been uh, more readily recognizing of First Amendment protections within college campuses as a special environment where it's especially abhorrent for the government to try to limit what people teach, learn, say, think. Also, because the Oklahoma law uses many of the quote-unquote divisive concepts that pop up in a lot of these laws. So we think that if we can get a court to strike down some of these in the Oklahoma law, it will help us fight laws with exactly the same language in other places. And I think third is the clients that we lined were able to bring together. The plaintiffs in our case in Oklahoma are able to tell an incredibly compelling story about Oklahoma and the importance of inclusive education. So we have the NAACP of Oklahoma. We have the American Indian Mem movement of Indian territory. We have the, um, professors from the Oklahoma, from Oklahoma University. Uh, we have the Black Emergency Response Team, a Black student activist group on the campus of Oklahoma University, as well as representing individual teachers, public school teachers, and uh, individual public school students. And so I think, you know, through our plaintiff's experiences over the last four months now where this law has been in place is it has wrought confusion. Uh, it has had a chilling effect on what teachers are feeling brave enough to present because the law creates a, a situation whereby if a, if a teacher violates or, or presents one of these quote unquote divisive concepts, even in the context of saying this is what some people thought, even though it was wrong, you can't even mention these things according to this law. And if you do, you risk your teaching license. And that threat has hung over the heads of these teachers uh, and impacted the education of these students for the last four months. And so we've asked a federal judge uh, not only to rule that the law is unconstitutional, but to block its enforcement uh, during the course of the litigation. So our preliminary injunction motion is currently pending. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that amongst your coalition of very impressive plaintiffs are both students, teachers, administrators, this is, these are all of the relevant stakeholders in a school saying we don't want this. And yet politicians from above are imposing these kind of restrictions. So, you know, it's always dicey, two lawyers talking to each other about the law. But can you explain at a high level, why are these bans in Oklahoma and elsewhere a violation of the First Amendment? It's a great question. So we actually have four different claims in Oklahoma. The first claim is actually sort of it's not even really a First Amendment claim. It's a due process claim. So the first argument is that these laws are unconstitutionally vague. So we say that they are, on plain reading, a reasonable person who is subject to the law cannot understand what is prohibited and what is permitted. And the ambiguity of the text leaves the door open 
to discriminatory and arbitrary enforcement by regulators, right? That's the vagueness claim. Then we have two different First Amendment claims. One is around the fact that this is a overbroad and viewpoint discriminatory regulation of academic freedom in the university context. And that impacts professors, teaching assistants, staff members, uh, students. Many people are teachers, learners, researchers, all at the same time. And they have administrative jobs as well. Right. So there's this idea in the law that the First Amendment protects academic freedom, particularly in higher education, because we want as few regulations inhibiting free thought in those places that we entrust with coming up with the new ideas that are going to improve uh, our country and our world. Right. So the, there's an inherent skepticism around laws that limit academic freedom. And this is the place where liberals, libertarians, conservatives have traditionally come together that we want as few limits on academic freedom as possible. And yet here, that doesn't seem to be the case for some of them. I have been disappointed, if not especially shocked, at the relative silence from the so-called academic freedom brigade. Some of them have written a blog piece or two about how these might not be such a great idea. But we haven't seen uh, that coalition really come together in strong voice saying this is this is a mistake. I think just to finish up the list of the, so the, the, of the four claims, the, the other two I think are particularly interesting as well. One is around the right to receive information. And this is a First Amendment claim on behalf of students, both in higher education and in K-12. So we talk, we talk about the First Amendment protecting free speech like the right to speak, but it also protects the right of listeners and the right to receive information and the right to access information. And so the courts have recognized that students have a specific First Amendment right to receive education without undue political partisan influence and without any reasonable relationship to a legitimate pedagogical or educational interest. And the last claim we bring is a equal protection claim, which is explicitly saying that uh, this law was passed with racial animus and intent and has had a racially disparate impact uh, because these laws especially negatively impact the experience of students of color, though ed inclusive education is good for all students. Uh, but we've seen that sort of this narrative around protecting white students from guilt, discomfort, or anything of those, those words are actually in many of these statutes, guilt, anguish, or discomfort. Uh, and it's implicit, if not explicit, that it's protecting the discomfort of white students. And so we think that that is very directly at the expense of students of color. I think that's an important point because it's not as though these laws are targeting the guilt or anguish or discomfort that black students or other minorities might feel from the traditional teaching of U.S. history that you and I might have received when we were growing up. I felt supremely uncomfortable about a lot of the things that I learned in school, but I learned them anyway. Exactly. Right. It's discomfort for whom? And it's, it really illustrates that you put teachers in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, right? Because... They present a whitewashed history and they're selling their students short and especially, uh, you know, having a negative impact on their students of color who don't see themselves in their curriculum. But if you do cover these issues, you risk somebody, anybody complaining, starting an investigation and find yourself out of a job. 
So you really are really between a rock and a hard place. And that's what we think, you know, a federal judge, even if they, let's say, are not quote unquote card carrying members of the ACLU, can recognize that the legislature can't put teachers in such an impossible situation. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and their mission is simple, which is to make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you're also giving to someone in need. They started with socks, that's their expertise, but they've expanded since then to shirts and underwear. As always, everything they make is soft, tagless, features invisible seams and the perfect weight so they all hang just right. So Bombas has you covered on all your essentials, but the real difference is that they aren't just striving to make the best clothes, but to do the most good. Socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters, and that's why Bombas donates one for every item you buy. So far, Bombas customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. So go to bombas.com best and get 20% off any purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off bombas.com slash best. When it comes to creating our own reality, how can we do that when it comes to education? Yeah, so education is the most important thing for us because when we know about ourselves and know about our history, understand our culture and have, have an education that, that reaffirms us and who we are and our values, then we can get to that liberation that you, you talked about. Because you know, liberation, of course, it, it starts in the mind. You can be physically free, but as long as your mind is captive, then you'll never be able to, to live free. Uh, so education, when it's authentic and it affirms who we are, then it's a, a key to liberation. Just to give you know one example. So there's a, a, a white teacher who told me that she taught at a predominantly black school and she had a difficult time talking about slavery because in her words, it was such a painful period. Black children get sad when she taught about slavery. And so I asked her, I said, well, how, how do you teach about slavery? And she seemed kind of miffed by that question as though there was only one way to, to, to teach about it. And I, I asked her, I said, how do you describe prisoners of war to your students? You know, when, when we look at uh, the prisoners of war that we celebrate that, that, um, that escape from that and come back home, is that something that we think they should be embarrassed by? And, you know, she conceded that they didn't. And so then I went on to talk about, you know, how to not teach about slaves, but teach about black people during the time of slavery, because 300,000 of us were free. And leading up to the Civil War, hundreds of us were escaping slavery every single month. And we were going to abolitionist movements. We were uh, working with John Brown when he attacked Harper's Ferry. Uh, we were setting up maroon colonies. Uh, we were escaping to, to, to Mexico and to Canada. Um, and we were radicalizing the abolitionist movement. Uh, so 
it wasn't this thing where we were just captive and waiting for the Confederate and the, the, the Union to hash it out. We made slavery untenable. I have two great, great, great grandfathers who were Civil War veterans. They, they, were, they, they were born into slavery and both of them escaped from that reality and joined the Union Army. That's what we're not being taught about ourselves. And so when, when you have teachers like that who are teaching black children, but don't know how to teach their history in a way that affirms them, uh, invigorates them, empowers them, um, then we're going to have a lot of children who don't understand their own value. So where does that come from, that approach to teaching black students about both slavery and other things that directly involve black history? Are they told to teach it a certain way or are they bringing certain biases to it or is it coming from elsewhere? Yeah, they're bringing biases and they're also bringing a lack of knowledge. They're also bringing one perspective of history and a a perspective that was intentionally designed uh, to make certain people feel good about their past. Uh, And so, you know, when we when we read things like, you know, Columbus discovered America, you know, we we know that Columbus didn't discover America. Uh, we know that he was lost and he, he never he never reached what we consider the mainland. Uh, and he also committed some horrible atrocities uh, to the people in what we know now as as uh, Dominican Republic and, and Haiti, that island. Um, but because they wanted to create when I say they, uh, I mean, you know, the architects of, of the educational system, because they wanted to create a narrative that the explorers that came from Europe to the, to the Western hemisphere, because they wanted to create a narrative that they were great and that they did not have flaws, they distorted history. And it's interesting in um, some of these anti-critical race theory laws, like the one in Florida, in that law, they said that it's against the law to distort history in that same one. So essentially they made it illegal to teach about Columbus the way that we typically teach Columbus, but because they're so ignorant to the truth, they don't see the contradiction of that. They don't see that by them saying that it's against the law to distort history. They're basically saying that you should not teach history the same way that we've been teaching it for over a century. So you touched on critical race theory, and I know that for a lot of folks, this concept was foreign or brand new up until the past couple of months. So help us understand what it is, what the conversation was about, and how that connects to um, the example you just gave. Yeah, so critical race theory was formulated around 40 years ago uh, out, of, out of legal uh, doctrine, legal scholars. And what they were endeavoring to do is to try to understand why you can have racism embedded in systems, even when the players are not overtly racist. So, you know, how can you have a black judge and black prosecutors, black lawyers, black correctional officers? Uh, how, how, how can you diversify a system and have people who are saying, you know, I'm not racist, but yet you still have black teenagers getting jail time for things that white teenagers 
don't even get arrested for. So you have all these things that's baked into the system. And so what critical race theory aimed to do is to explain why. And they uh, trace the, the, the history of how certain things are structured, including the criminal justice system and education, and how the legacy of white supremacy in the United States has, has created systems that don't function well for, 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 for Black people, and that's kind of understated. Critical race theory has been used to understand a lot of school districts uh, with that same phenomena where you, you can diversify the teaching staff, uh, you, can, you can create an environment where it's not popular or appropriate to be overtly racist, but you can still have outcomes that don't serve Black children well. And so critical race theory was, was used to examine that. Now, recently, there's been a push to create programs that we call diversity, equity, inclusion. Sometimes you add belonging and justice to it. So over the last 20 years, these programs have become more popular. And these are programs that don't have much to do with critical race theory, but it's programs that advocate for things like all teachers need to go through cultural diversity training. We need to examine the curriculum, look at things like disproportionality and uh, placement in special education and uh, suspensions, uh, placement in gifted and talented programs. So all things that you know seem like things that we should be doing. Again, not much to do with critical race theory. So recently, and especially after uh, George Floyd, there was an acceleration of diversity initiatives. And you had school districts who hadn't really thought that much about race saying that, you know, we need to, we need to do more and we need to do more diversity training. And there were people who did not like that. And so there was a concerted effort among people who were politically oriented to take this theory, this decades old theory and recast it as something that is uh, dangerous and in their words, Marxist. And their argument was that these diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives uh, were operating under the guise of this thing that is threatening, uh, something that is you know, kind of reverse racist, which is a very absurd notion. But they weren't comfortable saying they didn't like diversity initiatives. That made them sound racist. So what they had to do is find a proxy for diversity initiatives that people didn't understand well. They redefined that proxy, which is critical race theory, and said, you know, this is what we really have in schools. Critical race theory is not the diversity initiatives that you may have agreed with initially. So now we go from curriculum restrictions uh, to transparency to outright banning books altogether. So that's what I want to talk about next. Uh, You know, reports out of Oklahoma, the state where you're suing, have said that um, school districts are banning classics like To Kill a Mockingbird and A Raisin in the Sun. Um, They're also banning newer books like Jerry Craft's New Kid and the young adult novel All American Boys. 
What's the significance of moving towards banning books? How is that a sign of the more serious cancer that we're dealing with? It was, it was interesting. You know, in your intro, you said we're banning books again. I think in many ways, we've never stopped banning books. Right. Uh, you know, we've been banning books in prisons for quite some time. We've also filed some cases around that. Uh, there have been ongoing efforts, especially over the last 10 years, around banning books uh, regarding LGBTQ folks. Uh, you might re- remember the controversy around Drag Queen Story Hour, but there have also been books pulled from libraries because they depict LGBTQ characters, you know, many times. And our our ACLU attorneys have been litigating this issue uh, for quite some time. So what's old is new again. Now, what we have seen is, a, is, a, is an uptick. Our colleagues at the American Librarians Association have said that in their decades of experience looking at these things, there has been an actual increase recently. Uh, and I think it really just does go back to this idea. You know, I've seen the slide decks that are going around and, you know, there are 70 something slides about how you can be involved in the fight against CRT. These are all, you know, from a very specific playbook and it's under the guise of empowering parents. But the idea is, you know, the, the, the First Amendment is particularly protective of the idea of banning books. So again, this should be an area where liberals, conservatives, moderates, everybody should be shocked that American schools and libraries are pulling books. Um, but, you know, it's become a part of this cultural narrative. This cult- I don't want to use the word culture war, but this sort of ongoing debate about who we are. And I think people are having trouble seeing seeing through their, you know, the, the political valences to some of the sort of core free speech issues at play. Well, and the hypocrisy is so transparent when you know that most of these parents read these books when they were kids and never protested before, right? But all of a sudden it becomes an issue. So Emerson, we have talked a lot about schools, but it's bigger than schools. You just mentioned that you've done work around banning rap music in prisons. Uh, I know that artists like Jay-Z and Kelly Rowland and Killer Mike are uh, supporting uh, legislation to prevent prosecutors from using rap songs as evidence of alleged crime. How is the culture being erased or bastardized alongside this very particular movement in schools. It's an interesting point. The thing that keeps coming back to me is we talk about Black History Month and the importance of dealing with hard issues and reckoning with the reality of the, you know, brutality of our past. But, you know, as the chi- as the parent of two young black kids, you know, it's also really important to me that Black History Month is filled with black joy and culture and music and art and literature and all of those wonderful things. And so as much as many of these bands on CRT are trying to avoid discussions about racism in particular, I think it also sweeps in so much of black culture because that's an inevitable thread, even in the books that celebrate family and growth and exploration that element of racism and the racial hierarchy in the United States is usually going to be there, right? And so I think, you know, for me, it's in prisons, especially what is considered a dangerous idea. You know, if if in the schools, we're really concerned about what's going to make white students feel uncomfortable, 
In the prisons, the idea of what is a threatening idea is an entirely different calculation, but it also likewise sweeps in a vast swath of black culture and art that has an element of anger in it, that has an element of recognition of oppression and, and an impulse to fight authority. And so we've seen prisons given essentially carte blanche by the courts as long as they say it's security related, they can do whatever they want in most circumstances. We recently got a good win in the Ninth Circuit, where the Ninth Circuit in this case where an, a, a, a person who's incarcerated had requested a bunch of CDs and religious texts uh, in Arizona. Arizona Department of Corrections. They have these totally un unconstitutional policies, and they prohibited this person from accessing Kendrick Lamar, The Weeknd, several other hip-hop artists, uh, as well as texts by Elijah Muhammad from the Nation of Islam. So recently, the Ninth Circuit actually did say, look, there is at least an arguable case that Arizona is applying its policy in a discriminatory way, and it's letting in all sorts of graphic TV shows, movies, books, songs, but not allowing in explicit hip-hop music. Of course, every brief that we write on this has to reference Johnny Cash and all of the country musicians who have, you know, violent imagery in their, in their songs. So there's that at level whereby the Ninth Circuit was very suspicious, basically, because they said, is, is this hip-hop music really worse than all of these other things that you're letting in? Uh, and there we see that, you know, I think it's important for courts to be able to tell prison systems that you can't do whatever you want, especially when uh, it starts to take on this really racialized component. So earlier you mentioned that kids exposed to Black history have good outcomes or better outcomes in life. What does that mean? What does that look like and why is it? Yeah, some of the scholars um, like Asa Hilliard, the, the late Asa Hilliard, who did a lot of research looking at children and their experiences and the, 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 the impact uh, of a positive education on children, uh, have found that when, when children are taught to love themselves and to love their culture and their people, and taught about themselves uh, that they'll have stronger outcomes in terms of uh, you increase the graduation rates, you increase uh, matriculation into uh, college, um, and they go on to have more positive outcomes in life. Also, the work of, of Carol Lee, she worked with Haki Mahabudi in Chicago. Uh, Haki Mahabudi is the one who, who um, founded Third World Press, um, and they set up Afrocentric charter schools uh, and and Carol Lee coming from scholarship, she was able to uh, record uh, the data and and um, and publish the information and, and show strong outcomes of the students who who went through their curriculum. There's strong anecdotal evidence out there that when a, a student uh, has exposure to Black history, Black culture, uh, and is affirmed through education uh, that that there's better outcomes, and and even when when we look at students in general, 
and their sense of belonging. They looked at this whole notion of belonging, the, the extent to which a student belongs in the environment or feel, feel connected to their school. And they found that when a student feels connected to the school, they have better outcomes. Well, we can extrapolate that to say that um, the system as it exists right now is not set up for Black students to feel like they belong because they're not learning about themselves. Uh, so if we want to increase belonging among Black students, then we have to, to teach them about themselves. And, and it's really about teaching the truth. You know, it's not about uh, distorting it or, or cherry picking. Um, black people and our contributions have been omitted from history. Uh, there's a good book called Lies My Teacher Told Me. Uh, and they point to all of the ways in which not just black people, but uh, the indigenous population, um, uh, all of our, our history has been taken out and has been framed in such a way uh, that we look like passive pedestrians of, of American history, not material to American history. Yeah, and that's not by accident, is it? No, no, it's not not by accident. And, you know, going back to the example of Christopher Columbus, but, you know, the history is replete with those kinds of examples. You know, like if we look at, at Andrew Jackson, um, you know, we are taught that we have to revere American presidents, no matter um, what their past is and, and whether or not they've done things that, that's harmful to, to us. Um, Andrew Jackson... Uh, before he became president, uh, he presided over a massacre of black people in Florida. Uh, there was a, a there was a cache of weapons that was taken over by black people who escaped from slavery in Florida. If you if you uh, Google Negro Fort, uh, you can see the Wikipedia page on the Negro Fort. It was presided over by uh, someone named General uh, uh, Garson. Uh, that's the black man who was over that fort. And this was when Florida was an independent Spanish colony, a fragile Spanish colony. And Andrew Jackson led a reconnaissance mission uh, to investigate this fort uh, and uh, uh, provoke the fort and ended up killing hundreds of people, um, black people who were colonizing in an independent independent colony. Uh, and so, but, but we're taught to revere someone who uh, is instrumental uh, to holding Black people back. And then we're not taught about General Garson, uh, who was someone who looks like us, who was fighting in order to, you know, create the kind of liberation that we started our conversation with. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not by accident. Uh, it is by design uh, that certain people who have problematic past are amplified and elevated uh, in our history and other people who would mean more to us, uh, uh, their role is diminished or, or uh, taken away altogether. We're still in a white supremacist system. How reasonable is it to expect these certain types of changes to be implemented to actually benefit students, all students, in the way that, you know, the truth actually can. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not just reasonable. Uh, I would say that it's, um, it's, it's absolutely necessary for Black people to have certain expectations out of the schools. Um, our, our children are there. And, you know, I, I think that 
public school and the public school system is very important to black people. And it will remain important to black people because we need we need the government to pay for our education. Uh, that's a, uh, I think that education is a right. Um, but we also, you know, with that right, uh, we have a responsibility to hold people accountable for what they're, they're teaching our students. Uh, so, you know, the, the diversity initiatives that I talked about, um, you know, even if they don't lead to radical immediate change, I think it's a long-term process and we have to continue to push. We have to continue to evaluate and hold people accountable for giving our children the education that they deserve. I think what we're seeing here is a number of things about how banned books become the contest of change. And one of the things I think that it's important that we haven't talked about with it is what it actually means for inclusion to ban a book. So when you talk about, for example, the banning of Hinton Helper's book, you could really do that in the South because there wasn't really anything to compete with it. There wasn't radio, there wasn't TV, there wasn't social media. By the time we get to Scopes, Banning the teaching of evolution is really a statement about who is included and who is excluded. And by the time you get to To Kill a Mockingbird in the 1960s, it's even harder actually to keep those ideas out of the hands of young people. And then we look at the present, and really in our era of social media, banning mouse is absolutely not going to keep it out of the hands of people who can literally read a pirated copy on the internet. It sold vast amounts, right? There were more copies available than there had ever been before. And yet what it says at the community level is these are the people that are welcome in our community and you are not welcome to be represented in our community, certainly with LGBTQ youth, for example. And the bands say, we, the people doing the banning, have the power to make this decision and enforce it. These decisions about books and what people can and can't read, they're about inclusion and exclusion. They're about people performing these power gestures. We will ban this, as as you just said, Heather. People are going to be able to get these books in any number of other ways. The ban itself is significant, is wrongheaded, is anti-democratic. But part of what's happening right now is these performative moments in which certain people are, on the one hand, claiming that they have the right and the power to decide what other people have access to, and then throwing this into the atmosphere as a kind of political calling card to bring people who will have an emotional response to this to their side. So even as we, you and I, Heather, can sit here and rail against what banning books means and the many ways in which that's anti-democratic, part of what we're looking at here is people of a particular political persuasion making a power play that says they have the right to make these decisions, and in doing so, they have the right to say who is included and who is excluded among the national we. And I love the fact that your founding guys would have something to say about the exclusion of 
the 800 books that have been proposed or even of Mouse in terms of what that means for civil liberties and for the United States? Regardless of the book, and so this, this has, that's a sweeping statement, the vital importance of the spread and access that people have to information so they can weigh ideas, think about ideas, decide what they think, and act accordingly, that is one of the founding elements of a functioning democracy. And once you begin channeling off ideas and preventing people from seeing things or preventing people from saying things or channeling off aspects of the past that you don't want people to think about anymore, you are no longer encouraging people to think and sort through ideas. You're giving them limited access to ideas with the hope that they will have a particular outcome. We've just heard clips today, starting with David Pakman highlighting the disconnect between book banning and conservative principles. Tom Hartman looked at the money trail of the big groups supporting book and subject banning. At Liberty explained the legal right of students to learn and for there to be no disparate impact from curriculum decisions on groups of students. Black History Year reframed slavery education and discussed how history has been distorted to fit a particular narrative. At Liberty looked at the uptick in book banning and the racial division of how media is accepted or rejected within the prison system. Black History Year explained why black kids deserve to learn about themselves as part of a positive education, and Now and Then explained the power play at work behind every effort to ban or control what information people are allowed to access. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Now and Then explaining a fascinating case study of a banned book explaining why slavery was harmful to white Southerners. So if you actually look, yeah, a few of really rich guys are doing well, but for the most people in the American South, and he's focused exclusively on the welfare of white Southerners, they are being destroyed by human enslavement. So if you're trying to make the South better, you white guys who currently are supporting enslavement, you need to turn your back on it and get rid of slavery altogether. At Liberty looked at the next steps strategy for those seeking to litigate critical race theory out of existence. We think that, you know, the, the, these bills, some of them billed as transparency bills, are really actually efforts to silence and censor uh, and, and create a situation where teachers are afraid to teach, uh, you know, quote unquote, controversial topics. And Black History Year looked at the history and purpose of historically black colleges and universities. I remember one person, uh, they, they responded to someone saying that uh, they didn't want to go to an HBCU because they wanted a university that would prepare them for real life and being around predominantly black people isn't real life. And that person's response was, you have your entire life to be a minority. This is your one chance to not be a minority. 
To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Allison from Boulder and this is for Kwai and Nick in California. You both seem to be really hard on yourselves about your anger toward people who are behaving in harmful ways. I have a lot of experience with anger and exercising that anger. I am from an extremely dysfunctional family and have been bullied for my disabilities many times over the years. And I have experienced a lot of sexism and biphobia and homophobia. And I have been extremely angry over these things and also over the things like privilege and racism and economic injustice etc. Basically all the things that best of the left covers. There are a few things I've learned about anger that may be helpful to you. 1. Being angry is not the same as acting angry. You can allow yourself to feel your anger without acting harmfully, or thinking the person you're angry with is less than you or evil. You have choices for what you can do with your anger. 2. You can still be angry with a person while understanding them. For example, I understand my dad and why he is the way he is. I know he has had a hard life, but that doesn't mean the things he did to me weren't harmful. I can understand him and his life and still be angry with him. 3. For many people, our anger goes away and we are ready to forgive only after the harmful behavior is gone, and we are not ready for it to go away. The behavior that is causing our anger is still happening. Allowing ourselves to feel the anger without judging ourselves or wallowing in it is a part of the forgiveness process. We tend to judge anger very harshly because we confuse feeling it with acting on it. However, we are allowed to feel our feelings and need to in order for us to forgive and finally let go of the anger. The thing is that anger does have a purpose, it inspires us to act but we don't have to act harmfully. We can be angry and use that to inspire change. That is what I've chosen to do with my anger. And doing that instead of stuffing the feeling or judging myself for it is actually helping me become less and less angry over time. Jay is right that it is healthier and better for us as humans to not hold on to anger and instead forgive. But not all of us are there yet and that is okay. Thanks for the awesome show Jay and thanks Nick and Kwai for your interesting and informative comments. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Now, thanks to Allison for that message we just heard. Allison always has great stuff to say. Quick refresher. That message was in reply to an ongoing conversation. I don't have the episode numbers in front of me, I'm sorry. But every episode or two for a couple of months now, starting with Kwai, there has been a discussion that I've been chiming in on about anger against those who are actively or passively through inaction making the world a worse place. And after hearing Allison's perspective on anger and how it's managed and how it can take different shapes and forms. I'm starting to wonder if it's not that I've lost or let go of my anger, as I've claimed in the past. I'm starting to wonder if what's closer to reality is that I'm angry all the time, but I just don't really show it or feel it as much as I used to. Anger used to come to me in spikes, and 
Now it might just be the low level hum of everyday existence. I would absolutely believe that. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it in the least. You know, I mean, maybe one day my anger actually will disappear and it'll be like when you relax your shoulders after not even realizing that your shoulders were tense and then you say, oh goodness, I'm so relaxed. I didn't even realize. Maybe that's how my anger is. And honestly, maybe that's a more appropriate way to feel than to have actually let go of it. Anyway, speaking of relaxing shoulders, just a quick production note that we have a real vacation coming up. Not the usual kind of oh my god, I'm burned out, and we have to not put out an episode. That happens a lot. And not a standard family holiday fair that is not as stressful as work, but can sometimes approach it. Anyway, this is a real vacation, like long-planned, go-away, can't-remember-the-last-time-this-sort-of-thing-happened and don't even have access to the internet kind of vacation. That's the kind of vacation we're going on. So expect that for the next week as reruns are posted, and then be all the more excited that we will be returning after that. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991, or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com if you'd like to see my new autoresponder message that says I'm on vacation, and I will not be seeing your message until I return. As always, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.